When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I see by your issue, by that a horrible case of cannibalism occurred at the hotel. She had helped save quite a number of our country and had two or three fine chops out of several murdered missionaries. Biting and gnawing at the fleshy parts of the body. We briefly announced the arrival of several natives of the Fiji Islands. Genuine man, the proprietor yesterday offered the highest Fiji market price for a lot of 20 or more fine fat babies in order to give the strangers a good square meal, but could find no mother's I see by Welcome to Strange Familiars Podcast. We cover a range of topics from the paranormal to cryptids to the occult to mythology and folklore. Some of our shows will be presented over multiple episodes, while others will be one-shot features. We do our best to put new shows out every other week. I'm Timothy Renner. And I'm Anthony Hoskin. Please make sure to click the like button and subscribe to us wherever you're listening, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, or via any other service, 
and share the show around on social media if you would. Every little bit helps. If you have an idea for any strange stories you would like us to cover, or if you have experienced something strange yourself, please contact us by email, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. If you like what we're doing, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We have lots of different subscriber levels for things like buttons, vinyl stickers, and t-shirts, but even $3 a month will get you bonus content. We do patron-only shows. We've got a couple out there now. The more patrons we have, the more shows we can do. That's both the patron shows and our regular shows. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Every bit helps. And thanks to the patrons who've already signed up. Tonight is episode six, Barnum's Cannibals. And Anthony's got a little head cold or something going on with his voice, so just note that he'll be a little quieter tonight. That's a good thing. Our guest is Allison Renner, who is my wife. She is the one who brought this story to my attention. I had never heard of it. Had you heard this story before Before uh, Allison brought it up to us? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so before we begin, just a little caveat. We are using the terminology that was used in the 1800s to refer to these people, and that is the Fiji cannibals. It's probably not politically correct, but it's what they were called. It's what they were known as. They were from Fiji. That part is actually accurate. <laughs> yes. They probably weren't cannibals. By no means do, uh, do we mean to uh, upset anyone, but it was the terminology used. They referred to them as the Fiji cannibals. So uh, that's what we will be calling them as the sort of group name for, for these uh these three people actually and because for, it, it is crucial to the story itself it is, it is. <laughs> yes so we don't want to upset any actual cannibals <laughs> <laughs> so fiji is an island country it's in the south pacific it's about 1100 nautical miles northeast of new zealand and there is actual history of cannibalism amongst the tribes in fiji i don't think today but <laughs> in the past and in, in the 1800s when, mm-hmm. when this was happening Though, as I said, it's doubtful that these men were were actually cannibals. Yeah, I have my doubts about that. But it makes a great story. It does. And certainly uh, the whole thing with sideshows was hype, right? I mean, that was... Absolutely. A, that was a major part of it. I mean, outright lies also works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, however you could get people in. Yeah, exactly. Get... Any exaggerated story, any exaggerated... I mean, so a lot of times there's like a little kernel of truth to it. Like they were from Fiji. But, uh, right, and there is a history of cannibalism, so those two kernels of truth are accurate, though they might not apply. Now, the really shocking thing to me about this story was the fact that slavery was over. This is the 1870s, like at least in the United States, slavery was supposed to be over. But the way they framed it was that this fellow Gardenshire captured these people in Fiji. Yeah. And he has a history. He and his the rest of his family were slave traders. And so they knew this these roots. And they were interested in um, New Zealand and Fiji as potential commercial 
commercially viable places and in the in the process thought I could probably make some money selling people <laughs> right right so this Gardenshire uh gentleman we're talking about or maybe not gentleman is uh WC Gardenshire WC Gardenshire yes he I was it's garden hire but oh there's Sorry, no shire yeah, I, I, there's I, I, no shire there <laughs> WC Gardenhire. He was a former slaver, and he, he made his living as a slaver before slavery as, ended, right? As did his father before him. So he goes to Fiji, and he captures three men. That's not the story that's told, though. I mean, the, the story through Barnum's eyes is this very altruistic thing that he bought them to help ensure, as a bond, to ensure that if they were ever returned, that they wouldn't be killed. Right. So Barnum's actually doing this very altruistic thing by buying them and presenting them for three years on bond. And then he's supposed to return them back to Fiji, where they'll undoubtedly be killed by the king. But because Barnum's so nice, he keeps them here in America. That's the story Barnum Yeah, that's the story Barnum tells when he buys them. Barnum that there is a fool or a sucker born every minute. (laughs) Yeah. So Gardenhire first uh, exhibited the Fiji cannibals in Hawaii, which is, I mean, that's very early for Hawaii. I think it was just on the way back. Yeah, just I think those any, ju- Yeah, I think it was just... That, that would have them. And then in San Francisco, this was 1871. Yeah. He kind of crisscrosses making his way through the United States, making as much money off of them as he can till he gets the big prize by selling them to Barnum. And he made a lot of money in San Francisco on him, right? That's, yeah, I they guess said that's... like $150 a day, which in 1870s money is pretty decent. And Barnum probably has agents all over the country looking for, for Absolutely. acts and so forth. So he buys, I mean, again, this is the most shocking part to me. I, you know, you think of you can't buy people because slavery is over, but Barnum essentially buys these Fiji cannibals from garden hire. Yeah, I mean, when, and when you're when you're referring to sometimes they're referred to as managers but sometimes they're referred to as their keeper and in this case and with the fiji cannibals their manager is actually referred to as their keeper to me that doesn't seem yeah it's 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 different than yeah uh... it has a different connotation the cannibals distinguished visitors from the fiji islands how they look, what they have done, and what they said, from the St. Joseph Herald. In our last issue, we briefly announced the arrival in St. Joseph of several natives of the Fiji Islands, genuine man-eaters. The proprietor yesterday offered the highest Fiji market price for a lot of 20 or more fine, fat babies in order to give the strangers a good square meal, but could find no mothers having spare children in good condition for the spit. Then, too, the cold snap operated unfavorably on our visitors. Fearing that the Fijians would die either from starvation or cold, the manager bundled them up and took the first train for the south, promising to visit St. Joseph sometime next summer. The distinguished visitors were four in number. First in importance was the Princess Obava, a fat, lubberly female of about 25 years, the granddaughter of the emperor of 200,000 people. She is a Christian and has lost all fondness for human flesh. Then in importance came Rabiao, a dwarf over 35 years old and only two feet high, chief of the Rewa tribe. 
Their two companions were Ratu Boko Yoko, chief of the town, and Ayotaga in the island of Ovalau, and Ralu Masimoa, chief in Bao, the main town in the Fiji Islands. The two gentlemen last named were of middle size, strong-limbed and strong-necked, with a complexion between a copper color and a black, with dark, curly, and bushy hair. Whilst at the depot, they attracted considerable attention. A reporter of the Herald chanced to be at the depot at the time, and interviewed the princess, who has some smattering of the English tongue, and willingly answered all questions propounded to her. She complained bitterly of the cold, and wondered how anyone could live here through the winter. She liked a climate where she could go naked. Despite her conversion to Christianity, her clothes didn't feel comfortable on her. She had helped to eat quite a number of our countrymen, and had two or three fine chops out of several murdered missionaries, but that was before she was converted to Christianity, and she was not heartily ashamed of her conduct on those occasions. She was surprised to see so many old and helpless men and women in America. In Fiji, when the natives became old and infirm, the young men summarily released them from their earthly troubles by the means of a club or an axe. She thought that the women here were too lazy, and that the lash would do them good. In her native land, the women do all the work, as it was fit and proper they should. She was surprised, too, to find that men here only had one wife apiece, and seemed satisfied. In Fiji, a big chief often had four or five hundred wives, and even men of the most ordinary rank had five or six women to do his work. She then introduced the reporter to the dwarf, who had eaten nineteen ministers, all good and pious men, and had picked his teeth with the bones of their innocent offspring. He still maintained a remarkable fondness for small children, but she hopes that he will soon become civilized and Christianized. The other two chiefs, she said, were horrible cannibals, with insatiable appetites for human flesh. They did not have any great fondness for white men, although they had, several years ago, helped to eat some twenty shipwrecked sailors. But their fondness for colored men seemed unabated, and a careful guard was kept upon them whenever a lady or gentleman of color chanced in their presence. At this interesting stage of the conversation, the train came rushing into the depot, and the Fijians hastily gobbled up their traps and hurried into the cars. The Elk County Advocate, Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, Thursday, December 14th, 1871. Four cannibals, three men and one woman, from Barantar of the Cannibal Islands, captives in war, and according to the laws of cannibal warfare doomed to death, have, through a large sum of money and bonds for their return, been reprieved for three years by Mr. Barnum, and will probably soon be exhibited along with the other attractions of his great show. Documentary and official evidence sufficient to remove every reasonable doubt will be secured before the heavy cost will be incurred. The king of the islands, Thakombao, though refusing a permanent reprieve, has been tempted by the gold and the bonds for their return. 
Of course, the bonds will be forfeited and paid if the cannibals once reach civilized land. Of this we have Mr. Barnum's own promise. He writes as follows to the New York Evening Post. Your kindly notice of my latest enterprise to add four cannibals to my innumerable caravan unfortunately contains a clause which, unintentionally on your part, puts me in rather a savage light before the world. I trust you will permit me to correct it. It is true I receive the cannibals, should my scheme succeed, from King Thakumbau, who holds them as captives taken in war. And it is true that, if returned, they pay the penalty of death. Such is savage warfare. But I beg of you to let me say, if once in my possession, they will never return to be eaten. I shall forfeit and pay the bonds, which my agent is compelled to give. No, if they once get into my hands, I shall decline fattening them as tidbits for the maw of a royal cannibal. They will never go back to death by any consent or act of mine. Good man is Mr. Barnum, but it is to be hoped that he will keep close watch of his cannibals. They are untutored savages, and among the thousands who will look upon them, there will be millions of such meals as the gentle creatures could never get in their own sunny home. Their appetite may be a disease, and whether it is or not, we repeat that they have not been educated to those gentle attributes that forbid the sacrifice, even of one's enemy, to appease the pangs of hunger. Let them be abundantly provided with food, so that they may never be obliged to wail, missionary all around, and nary crumb to eat. Democrat and Chronicle, Rochester, New York, Thursday, January 25th, 1872. There was a story put out that the cannibals attacked their keeper. Mm-hmm. Civilizing cannibals. Fijians try to eat the keeper. Madame Rumor, with her hundred exaggerated tongues, created quite an excitement in and around that popular place of resort, the museum, at 9th and Arch Streets, yesterday afternoon. About two o'clock, a timid ballet girl in the Nyad Queen, now drawing such large houses there, rushed shrieking into the street with the frightful story that the Fiji Island cannibals had broken their bonds, ignored their civilization, and were at that moment engaged in eating their keeper while yet alive. The necessary crowd having congregated, in less time than it takes to write the fact, the police rushed in and the true state of the case was ascertained. It seems that among the numerous attractions which the new proprietor of the museum, Mr. Robert Simpson, has gathered as auxiliaries to the various theatrical entertainments at the Little Museum, or what are set down in the bills as the Ten Living Wonders, viz. the Fiji Cannibals, the Wild Australian Children, the White Moor, the Lady of Madagascar, the Circassian, and Bearded Ladies, and Admiral Dot. Of course, the Fiji Island cannibals are the most conspicuous in the group and excite much attention on account of their gigantic forms, ferocious aspect, and evidently voracious characteristic for veracity in human flesh. The keeper, George Brown, who was said to have been eaten by the two copper-colored savages, 
tells of their capture by a rival band of islanders and sale to a slaver who sold them eventually to Barnum, the great showman. There were originally three, the third being a woman, but she died and was incontinently devoured by her two now surviving companions. After various mutations, the two Fiji cannibals arrived at the museum in charge of their keeper, and on Thursday they were allowed to don civilized clothing, their exhibition costume being the native dress of their island, with the addition of a garment about their loins, and go out into the city with a few dollars in their pocket. Following the example of their copper-colored kinsmen of the American forests, they indulged freely in fire water, and the usual consequence followed. They remained out all night, much to the anxiety of their keeper, but staggered in about noon yesterday to meet, of course, reproaches of the most improved kind. While the keeper was quietly sitting on the side of his bunk, down among the actor's quarters, in the room where the two cannibals slept in the upper berth, and the two wild Australian children in the lower berth, the keeper occupying the bunk between, suddenly, as by a preconcerted arrangement, the two massive, wiry fellows sprang upon him, and before he could recover himself, had him prostrate by the throat, and with unearthly yells, were screaming in Fiji, "'Eat him! Eat him!' A startled cry from the keeper called to his assistance the two wild Australian children, who rendered such effective service by springing on the backs of the struggling cannibals and using their own island clubs upon the assailants' heads, that the keeper finally got upon his feet and plied one of the two savage clubs with such vigor that the two half-intoxicated worthies from the South Pacific were beaten back to the wall of the little chamber." By this time, several of the actors had rushed in, but after several samples of the marvelous strength of these now infuriated savages, it was found necessary to bring in the blackjacks of the police, which had to be plied with utter recklessness on the hard skulls of the man-eaters before they could be reduced to civilization and law. Civilization finally forced Jim into the upper bunk, where he lay cowering with fear for several hours, while the law carried off John to the nearest station house, where he was kept all last night and will have a hearing this morning, either on a charge of being drunk and disorderly, or assault and battery, on the unlucky keeper, who bears the marks of the throttling and a vicious stroke on the side of his head. It is needless to add that these gentlemen will be on exhibition again today and hereafter, but in the condition of Bottom's lion, roaring, so as not to fright the ladies, as gently as any sucking dove. The Cincinnati Enquirer, Cincinnati, Ohio, Wednesday, January 3rd, 1877. Barnum buys the cannibals again that just is so he disturbing buys the attraction okay which happens to only be three people <laughs> three people among the three there are there are two full-grown men mm-hmm. and one little person yeah and he is known as the little general yes the little general Ra, and I, i'll mispronounce his last name so we'll just refer to him as general Ra or the little general and those are the three garden hire brought to the united states mm-hmm. but but barnum for some reason adds this woman into the mix 
Well, I think because it's always nice to juxtapose the male and the female, the the large and the small. That that's often done with presentation of people with with disabilities or quote unquote freaks. Is in it, in the sideshow in the sideshow world. Also, she brings this element of she's been able to be Christianized. She's she's supposedly been Christianized by a missionary that came there. The reality is she was like a domestic working in Baltimore who lived in Virginia for a while. She was not remotely from Fiji. But they called her Princess Oteva, right? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. So, yeah, she, so the American, most likely. Yeah, probably a former slave herself. Almost certainly. Yeah. So he starts showing the Fiji cannibals around during the circus off season in the South. Yeah. We, we kind of doing them. like the, the winter circuit, I guess for the sideshow people. And just so people know, this is 1870. Uh, PT Barnum has been doing this for how, approximately how long now? Just a few decades. So a long time. Yeah. And this is before Bailey. This is before Barnum and Bailey. This is just PT Barnum. And he toured the country with a circus, a menagerie, Hippodrome, whatever they just, every year they kind of changed it to make it sound more spectacular. And it's the spring of 1872, and he puts together his uh, great exposition. P.T. Barnum, they begin touring. It's a circus, a museum, a sideshow, all in one. This was when the first time a circus hired a train, right, to, mm-hmm. to go around. I think it was the first time that the circus was transported by train to York. If not in general, I have to check that, but I, I think it might have been in general. And they paid a lot of money for it, too. I think it was like $2,000 from Harrisburg to York and York back to Harrisburg or something. I mean, some insane amount, but... Well, it's, it's the whole circus. Yeah, that's know. a lot. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have to rent a, a huge train. So he's touring around, he's going to these other cities, and eventually they come to York. P.T. Barnum, the Prince of Showmen, is coming to York with his big show, which, by the way, is the biggest thing of the kind in which even he, celebrated as he is for big things, was ever engaged. A circus, museum, and menagerie combined, with a large number of other interesting attractions added, such as the wild cannibals from the Fiji Islands, procured by Mr. Barnum at great expense, Monster Sea Lions, the only living giraffe in the country, Little Admiral Dot, the smallest man in the world, the bearded girl, a woman born without arms, together with other interesting features, all to be seen for 50 cents, one ticket passing the holder through the six enormous tents. Seventy cars and full locomotives are necessary to transport Mr. Barnum's grand caravansary, and when the sun sets each day, the treasurer finds that $5,000 will barely pay the fiddler for one day. Mr. Barnum has always been noted for vast undertakings and great achievements, but we doubt if he ever before attempted anything on so large a scale as the one in which he is at present engaged. Tuesday, May 14th, is the day fixed upon as the entree of the great show into York, and we miss our predictions if we do not see the largest assemblage ever gathered in our streets. These shows are given each day, and a double circus troupe is employed, the morning entertainment being in all respects equal to either of the others. 
the York Daily, York, Pennsylvania, Thursday, May 9th, 1872. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, the little general was not healthy, right? He, he was having some... Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of, like, consistent narrative of because he's, you know, a, a native person, he doesn't understand that you need to wear clothes and shoes. And so he's caught a cold or he's, you know, he's sickly because of this because he just, he has, what, what do they say, something like a native fear of shoes and clothes? Yeah. I think that was the quote. Yeah. If you have any interest in sideshow lore or, or famous do. sideshow uh, <laughs> personalities. They're also this time, in this particular season, traveling with Annie Jones, who's one of the, the most famous bearded women ever. She started off when she was a year old as a, as a bearded child and grew up in the circus. She was a bearded child? Yeah. <laughs> so this is my wife's kind of area of interest. This is why we brought her on for this episode. She became interested in this because she researched local York photographers mainly the Swords Brothers and another fellow. Oh, B.C. Uh, Pence, who, because of York's proximity, were able to photograph a huge amount of sideshow personalities. Right, so, and, and so it's through these photographers that you sort of became interested in the circus and the sideshow. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why Allison is our guest tonight. It's not just a, a, a random thing. She's pretty much, she's our expert on, on this topic. And she's not a bearded lady. <laughs> no. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> So it was the the bearded lady and uh, and she and also um, Anne Leek, who was a woman who did not have arms but was able to do like complicated embroidery projects with her feet. She signed all of her cards, the back of her photographs, with her feet. And these are pretty famous. Like, yeah, these like, are famous. Like you, will, if you see, if you've ever seen um, the group of uh, photographs by Charles Eisenman, like the most famous freak photographer. Their photos are all in there. And he was from New York, though. He wasn't. Yeah, he was from New York. New York, Pennsylvania. Did he ever photograph, or did anyone ever photograph the Fiji cannibals? Yeah, Matthew Brady, the the celebrated uh, quote-unquote Lincoln photographer, is the only one to have, they know of, to have photographed the Fiji cannibals. Oh, so there are images out there. There are images of them, yeah. There, there are two or three, and, and the ones that I've seen, they're, they don't really differ that much. There's just one where they have fans in the background and one where they're just sort of just kind of blankly looking straight ahead. It's May of 1872. Barnum comes to York with his great big circus. And the Fiji cannibals and presumably other sideshow personnel were put up at the Penn Hotel. 
And as we said, the little general had been sick for a time before. That One of the stories, which I don't know if it's true or not, we saw said that they sent him to Barnum's own doctor. I find that very hard to believe. I just don't. This idea that they're treated as, as equals. The only reason I could possibly see that is because he has an investment that he'd like to maintain. Not so much that he's actually worried about his health. I don't know. I find it hard to believe the expense and the time taken away from the show to go to New York. I don't think that he would have. Yeah. And he kind of, as we'll talk about later, he kind of didn't follow through on some other things he promised in in regards to uh, the little general. So on the day of May 14th, 1872, the little general who's been sick, who's been distraught. Yes. He's just muttering and shaking, I guess, visibly sick. And he dies in his hotel room. Yes. In York. Death of the Cannibal Dwarf. The York Daily of this morning says Barnum's Museum, Menagerie, and Hippodrome met with quite a loss yesterday in the death of the notorious Cannibal Dwarf, which occurred at the Pennsylvania Hotel in this place. The little Fiji exhibited symptoms of indisposition several days ago, and the manager, Mr. W.C. Coop, sent the general, as he is called, to New York to be cared for by Mr. Barnum's family physician. But the little savage becoming restless in the absence of his associates, he was returned to the company. Like all of his race, he had a native horror of shoes and clothing, and even in the wet, cold days that came upon the company in New Jersey, the manager was unable to force shoes upon the general and make him dress with sufficient warmth. Yesterday, the man in charge noticed that his fingers were constantly in motion while he muttered continually the only word he ever pronounced intelligibly, Fiji. He refused everything like food or nourishment, and apparently thought of nothing but his native island. Dancing or violent gesturing of any kind was always a source of great merriment to the general, but now the keeper could not provoke even a smile. The miniature being was dying, and while his keeper was doing his best to cheer him up and make him take medicine, he rose in bed, muttered Fiji in a whisper, and fell back dead. His three native companions, who up to this time were wholly indifferent, now exhibited all the symptoms of genuine grief. They howled incessantly, and such fearful physical contortions were probably never before witnessed in a civilized community. The death of this dwarf savage was not an unexpected event. The scene subsequent, however, sent a thrill through each of the very few conversant with the facts. Shortly after the corpse was placed in the coffin, last evening, Mr. S. S. Smith, the keeper, locked the door upon the three companions in an adjoining room and left the building for the purpose of consulting with the manager at the National Hotel. He states that he was not absent 30 minutes, but that upon returning, a scene presented itself too horrible to detail. The two male associates had gained access to the corpse and were biting and gnawing at the fleshy part of the body with all the eagerness of their native cannibalism. The female stood aloof in one corner, and by sign, word, and gesture was entreating them to desist. It is understood that this woman is a convert to the teachings of English missionaries, and looks with abhorrence upon all the unchristian habits of her tribe. Mr. Smith promptly interfered, and the two miserable beings went sullenly to their apartment 
all regret the unnatural affair, and none more than the parties directly interested. The remains were quietly buried in the evening. Harrisburg Telegraph, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Wednesday, May 15th, 1872. On Tuesday evening, the remains of the Fiji cannibal belonging to Barnum Show, who died while in York, were buried in Potter's Field. We are informed that Mr. Barnum will either disinter the corpse or have the grave marked by a tombstone. The York Daily, York, Pennsylvania, Thursday, May 16, 1872. As the story goes, as we've heard, his cannibal friends <laughs> were very distraught and they were left alone with the body mm-hmm. for a time. And when people came back, I guess the keeper... Well, the keeper the, the keeper went down to the National House, which is still there today. Which is? You know, the building on the corner of Market and Philadelphia with all the different levels. It's No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and no one listening will either. The National House is a... Is it a bar? Is it... Well, it's a, a former hotel. Another okay. former hotel. Now it's an apartment building. So he went down... He went down to talk to somebody at the National House okay. and lock them in for the night. Uh, with the dead body. Supposedly. With the dead body, supposedly. And he returns, and they're supposedly eating it. Yes. E- eating the, the little general. The female was in a different room, correct? Is the, that what I, I think they said she was protesting. She was she was Well, like, yeah, because you, you, she was the reformed, uh, Christianized, Christianized yes. woman. She yeah. knew that it was wrong, but they were still you know, so native that they, they had to. I mean, they make it sound as if they've been just pining for flesh for, for <laughs> months now. <laughs> They couldn't help themselves. I mean, it only takes a few minutes to go from distraught to hungry. So, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 maybe that's how they dealt with their uh, their grief. Yeah, that's. I mean, it seems logical. Sometimes I eat my not, feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is very practical. I don't know why the Pennsylvania Dutch have not adopted this practice right? anyway. I, you know, as great a story as this cannibal story is. It was a plant. Absolutely. And then the newspapers use it to disparage each other about almost in a fake news kind of way. Like they're, they're calling out the other newspaper for planting the fake news from Barnum. Barnum probably paid for it. It's pretty brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes a great story. And then they said that week at the fair, five, at least 5,000 attendees. Which would be a pretty banner yeah, I mean, considering how many people are in the county then versus even how many people are in the county now, what proportion that is. It's huge. The late tragedy in reference to Barnum's cannibals while in York has appeared to some as an entirely incredible story, and especially to such who were not conversant with the customs and habits of these savages. For the information of those, we give the following historical facts, showing that there are numerous instances on record of people eating human flesh from the earliest periods of the world's history. Herodotus speaks of a class of people who killed their own relatives and eat them. He also said that among the Isidones, when one died, it was the custom of the nearest relatives to meet and eat the flesh of the corpse. These reports were not credited by some, but from recent and more thorough investigations in the world, it has been proven that cannibalism did and at present does exist. 
authors of a later period confirm the statement that in the Fiji Islands, New Zealand, and many other parts, cannibalism has been systematically practiced. Mr. Ducailu, a celebrated French naturalist, states that a class of cannibals, called the fans, not only devour the bodies of captives, but even eat the bodies of those who have died of disease. The same author further states that they become so ravenous for human flesh that they actually disinter freshly buried bodies and eat them. From the facts given by these reliable historians, we can form an idea of the ravenous desire which is manifested by these heathen people to devour human flesh, and judging from what these historians tell us, it is not at all improbable that after Barnum's cannibals had been deprived of such a desirable luxury for almost one year, being the time they were away from their native land, and also having had a sight of no corpse during that time, that the dead body of their companion should have excited their natural appetites to such an extent as to practically exhibit an eagerness to engage in so favorite a custom. The keeper informed us that ever since he had charge of the cannibals, he, under all circumstances, had perfect control of them, up to this time, when a peculiar sullenness or discontented disposition was manifested, which caused him much uneasiness and a great desire to get them away from the town of York. The York Daily, York, Pennsylvania, Tuesday, May 21st, 1872. To the editor of the York Daily, Dear Sir, I see by your issue of May 16th that a horrible case of cannibalism occurred at the hotel in your city during the visit of the Fijians. Your reporter states that the two male associates had gained access to the corpse and were biting and gnawing at the fleshy parts of the body with all eagerness of their native cannibalism. These boys stayed a week at my house in this city, and I had charge of them to the States. I have known them, and they have known me for years, and I was certainly surprised at its occurrence. Wonderful things often happen in connection with Mr. Barnum's shows. I have never heard of such a case in Fiji, where I resided five years. It may seem strange for a European trying to vindicate such people, but when poor South Sea Islanders are in a strange land and such statements are made, causing people to look at them with horror, then I think something may be said in vindication. Cannibalism is only practiced by a few small tribes in the island of Vitilevu in the Fiji group. Not any of these Fijians belong to these tribes, and even these cannibals of Vitelevu never eat any human or animal food raw. It seems strange that these boys, who never saw any cannibal practices, should commence in your city. Anyone can see that it is stated to attract the morbid curiosity of the public. The little general belonged to a Rewa River tribe and has resided in the town of Bao, the capital of Fiji, for 12 years, in which town he was trained by the Methodist Mission, which was at different times under the charge of English Mission, Messrs. Calvert, Langham, and Nettleton. He could read his Fijian Bible very well. 
The two boys who are said to have indulged in cannibalism have also received mission training. Both of them have Roman Catholic parents who are connected with the mission under the charge of old French priest Father Brehart of the Sacred Heart. James, the eldest, is a native of Sotonga, which is adjoining the European town of Luke, Fiji, where the foreign consuls reside. His home was only a few hundred yards from where I resided several years with my family. They were brought away from Fiji by a gentleman after a seven-weeks visit on the promise of return in one year. At our last state fair, this gentleman induced me to join him as an interpreter, taking with me my collection of curiosities and the Fijian woman who has resided with me four years, being a resident of Sacramento for two years. On reaching the States, I found my family was not receiving an allowance as promised, so I got home again with difficulty, leaving the woman, Mary Jane, behind on the gentleman promising to take care of her and return all of them to Fiji. He has arrived in this state and states that he had disposed of them to Mr. Barnum for $1,400. I have made inquiries since respecting them, which remain unanswered. The girl has always been a Christian and was placed under my charge by the Methodist mission in Fiji. She has accompanied my family to Australia and Chile on our way to San Francisco. There are now 3,000 European residents in Fiji and the number is constantly increasing. They are chiefly engaged in cotton planting and trading with natives. The Christian king, Takumba, has formed a parliament, two-thirds of which are European. The Methodists have published this year the following statement of their mission, viz. 617 churches, 10 English missionaries, 48 native missionaries, who are trained at a native college, 23,233 church members, 905 catechists, 1,066 Sabbath schools, 1,549 day schools, and 105,000 attendants at public worship. The Roman Catholic mission consists of 10 French priests stationed on various islands, the whole thing being under the superintendence of Father Braheret, who has resided 25 years at the island. Yours respectfully, George Boyne. The York Daily, Thursday, June 13th, 1872. So the little general was supposed to have been buried this the same day before sundown. Yeah, I don't know if he was Jewish. Or not. <laughs> it had to be done. It had to be done and quickly. They, they they put him in a in what's called a potter's field. This is the newer of two potter's fields mm -hmm. in York. Newer meaning turn of the century kind of mm -hmm. era. And a potter's field was a graveyard where they put the poor, anyone who couldn't pay for funeral expenses. Anonymous. Abandoned babies. Stillborn. Stillborn babies. Basically unmarked graves. Basically a big field full of unmarked graves. Exactly. And the little general was 
buried first in uh, the other potter's field. And then they went to move him. <laughs> and 500 other people. <laughs> he was gone. <laughs> and only the lid remained. So I guess every city had, had potter's fields. I mean, that was... They have a whole island, don't they, in, off in, in New York, New York City? Yeah. So this is, I'm, I'm guessing, half an acre? Three, three quarters of an acre, maybe? Yeah. A less, field? Less than an acre. It's right beside Prospect Hill Cemetery, which... So you uh, can see people that other people can't about. <laughs> but you are not allowed yeah, without beyond the gates. It, <laughs> Those you, people over there were loved. You can uh, refer to episode two for more on Prospect Hill Cemetery. The other thing I read that I thought was interesting was that other people were stealing the fence around Potter's Field to use in their own wood stoves during the winter because they were so poor. Here, in York. Yeah, here in York at the Potter's Field. The poor are getting fed on by, by the poor. <laughs> it happens. Like Anthony was saying, I'm sure grave robbings were, especially in the Potter's Field, were quite common. For scientific studies, medical purposes. Body snatchers. They'd sell them to medical schools. This is sort of underwhelming and it, to the point of being really sad. The potter showed, yeah. yeah it, it was completely it expected, though, for the poor. Yeah. There's one marker here that notes that it's a city cemetery in memory of Clashe Johnson and all those laid to rest in these hollowed grounds with no other names mentioned. It truly feels forgotten here. And I think the position next to Prospect Hill just that makes it all the more just apparent. Like, th that was the people who had enough money to be buried properly. Uh, well, put that in quotes. I guess if you could afford a marker, you didn't get put in a potter seal. Yeah, you might not be able to afford a marker, and but be able to be afforded to be buried, so... Just two steps removed from. Yeah. Now I did read somewhere that there was some other small plot of a potter's field that was broken up or covered over when they made the Sherman Street bridge overpass. Did you want to go there and look around, see if there's any? Why not? We got time. I mean, sadly, this is interesting, but sadly, there's just there's nothing here. Yeah, there's not I mean, a lot to see here. Nothing above ground. Okay, so so far we know of three potter's fields right here in the city. There's this one, there's the one underneath the school, and there's the one. And that's a lot of fields for a small town. A lot of poor people. There's as much signage for cleaning up your dog waste as there is for anything else here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's very sad. as if there might be some markers that were still visible. Yeah. That's what it sounded like. That's the thing that's See, we saw this part over here, which to me at least looked... Marker-ish. Marker-ish. Oh, yeah. Like if a bunch of fill dirt over time had covered up potentially a marker. We moved on to a separate potter's field, or at least as close as we think we can get. Surprise, potter's field's aren't treated with a great amount of respect. This would not be where the 
they would have moved uh, the little general if they had found him at all. But since we were out, we thought we'd go look at this other potter's field, which I can see becoming an obsession. <laughs> because us. Graves, tragedy, sadness, injustice. This one, they literally dug up part of the potter's field to make a bridge. I don't think they dug it up. I think they just obscured it. <laughs> okay, so they just... I think they dumped, they literally dumped fill dirt on top of it and made a bridge on top of it. Oh, okay. Doesn't it, doesn't that seem like it? If you're building yeah, a bridge sure. across... And look at, look at the way that this is like kind of a natural... Yeah, this is, this is, this is fairly flat here and then it raises for the bridge. So you were talking about how the name Potter's Field came about. Yeah, yeah. Apparently it's from the Bible. It's from uh, Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver that he got for uh, the supposed betrayal of, of Jesus. He returned it to the priest before he hung himself, and then the priest used it to buy a potter's field that the potters have, had used and, and uh, dug up all the clay, and they used it to bury the poor. So they paid for it with Judas's 30 pieces of silver. Did it start... Was Judas buried there? I do not know. There's nothing mentioned about that. He went and hung himself. I don't know... Uh, his suicides went in Potter's Field. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> so. Yeah, there's no mention, I don't think, of where Judas is buried. Is At least not when I was looking it up. I don't know. This one, while the injustice of having fill dirt dumped on top of it seems worse, in some ways it's more peaceful because it hasn't been turned into well, a yeah, field. Yeah, this is a little <laughs> park. I was saying before, I, I almost kind of think that's better than just a... A lot full of weeds. Yeah. At least, yeah. you know, kids play here, and there's there's some joy to be had for the living. I actually like the fact that it still allows some of the the poorer folks in York to have some shelter. There's uh, some some uh, squatters. Uh, what do you want to call it? Under the bridge. Yeah, yeah. There's some squatters under the bridge. They've made a home under there, and uh, so at least it still helps the the less fortunate in a way. And that woodpecker agrees. Mm. So here, here are the facts. This is what we know. They said he was put in a potter's field. We know they said he was. Exactly. And I've, I've looked for a death certificate for people who died that day in York County. I can't find any record of him. I don't, I mean, the sad thing is because he was in essence property and not considered a human, he might not have gotten a death certificate the way anybody else, even another traveling circus member might have. I mean, it, it's horrible, but I feel like that might be the reality of it. So, the, so ostensibly, he's buried. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> we know he's dead, and we know he's dead at the Penn Hotel. We know that the Potter's Field in which he was supposed to be buried became the parking lot of the high school. Yeah, which is now what Hannapen is. Yes, Hannapen. They it was supposed to be dedicated. Forever, in, yeah, in perpetuity. <laughs> but they decided they needed it, so hey, let's let's get this this only poor people. Let's dig them up. Yeah, it's amazing how these these stories never really change in politics. <laughs> right. And it's, this is the 1890s, but people remember. 
Yeah. Oh, he's, su- he's supposed to be this, you know, the little general supposed to be in there. Let's go see him when they dig him up. So as they're exhuming these, these bodies to move to the, the second potter's field, the one we visited, there's no body. There's just, no, no just coffin. Just a coffin lid. Just the lid. That leaves us with speculation. Was the coffin lid just another plant from Barnum? Yeah, did Barnum... Did he never even make it to the... Now, now Barnum had said he was either going to have him relocated mm-hmm. or pay for a stone for him, uh, a headstone. He. There's we, no record of either one of those things happening. There's no record of either one of those things. So now we're down to speculation. But we have some interesting ideas to go on. We talked about, I believe on the on location, we talked about doctors and medical schools paying <laughs> ghouls to, 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 for bodies, for, for dissection. That's how they, um, they learned at that time. And we know that Bransby Pence, the York photographer we talked a little bit about before, he did many portraits of circus people. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that he probably had some sort of working relationship with Barnum, and Barnum probably brought the circus performers to him. They would have known where to get pictures taken or if they needed to get copies made while they were there to sell. Because they a probably, lot of a lot of times you'll find like Eisenman copies that Pence made, right? Like or or, or Swords or, Brothers or, made. Or yeah. Other, other yeah, that they're copying other photographers because there were the the idea that there was some sort of copyright Yeah, it is, was is ahead of that. It right. is in the future some point. Pence most likely knew Barnum in some way probably would have been familiar with with the sideshow performers. Absolutely, because there's some that he returns to that that the whole the studio returns to years after years after year, like to take new portraits. So he probably would have been familiar with the comings and goings of them. One would think. Yeah, he yeah he lived in town, right on uh, Beaver Street. He, he would have been working downtown. That's the kind yeah. of gossip that is going to get around. <laughs> Beaver Street is only one street down from where the Penn Hotel would have been. Okay, I believe so, one or two. So he's right there. And Bransby Pence's father... Was a doctor. Was a doctor. And there was rumored to be a doctor who had an articulated uh, skeleton of a little person. In York. And that is, So it's thought that possibly... Some unnamed doctor had the bones of the little general. So he was supposed to have uh, performed a dissection on him and kept the, the and skeleton. then kept the bones. Yeah, and had him hanging in his office, right? Yeah, I had read that, but I it, it never says specifically. It just says the local doctor. But when you check the census records, there are a lot of physicians oh, sure. within the within the York County borders at that time. So it's. A, that's kind of hard to narrow down who it could be. This is just purely speculative. Pure like, speculation. Who, you know, but using... it's so interesting that the guy who photographed all the sideshow people, his dad was a doctor. Yeah. I in mean, York. If you're going to use Occam's razor, it's, that, it's, that seems a, a likely... It's just an interesting... If nothing else, it's an interesting coincidence. Did he pay someone to dig up the little general and bring it to him? Did Pence, the photographer, did his son feed him the information? Like, this is where he's going to be. Mm-hmm. And My suspicion is he was never even buried. You don't even think he was put in the ground? No. I think he was handed over. I think Barnum saw the potential to recoup some of his loss. And, and, and sold his and body. And sold his body. I mean, that if you're going to be as greedy and soulless as Barnum could be, 
it doesn't seem unlikely to me. Well, they're buying people. Yeah, they're, if you're buying, I mean, if your moral compass is going there, I don't, I, I don't think selling a dead body to to someone without it. There's a really interesting aside uh, with Pence that connects to episode two of uh, the Singing Corpse. When he stopped being a photographer, he sold his business to the Swords Brothers, I guess, or sold his equipment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he went on to, you told me he was... He was the manager of the Opera House. Which he would have co-managed with Delilah, Delilah, Delilah Burnham's husband. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So there's a connection there to to episode two. So the rumor is that there is these bones of a little person in a doctor's office in New York, whether it's the little general mm -hmm. or some other little person. How would you tell from the bones, I suppose? Mm -hmm. Where are the bones? I would suspect someone has them somewhere. I don't think that's the kind of thing that gets thrown away. Right. Well, and you told me a story about... That there's a precedent for what one person's sideshow gaff might in reality be a real person that there was an, an aboriginal person that had been exhibited and when he died they kept him for so long transferring from one sideshow owner to another that they had forgotten that it was a real person and not a sideshow gaff and so they're they, showing his corpse they're showing his corpse and then it ends up i think in a funeral home somewhere in the but they, midwest but they think it's they don't they, think it's a body they don't they, think it's a real think person a joke it, it ends up that it is a real person and is eventually returned to i think australia but because so. they did make for sideshows a lot of fake what yeah. you saying they called them gaffs they, like the a lot of the fiji mermaids are just yeah. paper mache We've seen a lot of uh, paper mache mummies that they had, really yeah. interesting and, and like almost realistic looking ones. A fellow had an antique store in the train station right right down the street in Red Lion here. He took us in the back room one time, Allison and I, and he had, I don't know, 30 or 40 of these black mummies that were just paper mache, I believe, right? Yeah, they looked, I mean, in sort of like a half light, they were pretty foreboding <laughs> yeah, they, i mean they looked real and he said basically it was some company in baltimore just made these things for for sideshows and horror houses when the warehouse went down he ended up buying all these these uh you know paper mache mummies wow. so he, he took us back to show me some antique instrument but i'm back in there i'm like there's all these mummies i'm like what are those <laughs> It was, uh, I, I wish at the time I, you know, I should have made an offer on one, but yeah, we need more mummies in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know where the bones are. Maybe they're somewhere in New York. Yeah. That would be really, if you have these bones, please contact us at <laughs> strange familiars podcast at gmail.com. I, I think it please would be, and thank you. I think it would be nice to, uh, give his remains a proper burial if they do exist somewhere or some sort of. I think so, and and we talked about the possibility of starting a Kickstarter or something to see if we could get a monument for the little general, which Barnum said he was going to do, and he never did. Exactly. So we very more rich people are going to take that up for him since he was such a kind gentleman. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure there, if that. Barnum were still alive, he'd find some way to spin it in the, oh, yeah. so that it would seem like it was his idea. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's, you know, let's look into it. I think that'd be a pretty amazing thing, you know, for us to do. Plus bring to light a little bit more York history that's yeah, it's, forgotten. It's, just, it's a cool York history. It's a neat thing. You know, most of the story actually happened. The only, the last bit, bit we're speculating on what happened to the body, but the rest of, the, of it, you know, is what happened in York. 
yeah, let's uh, let's explore that idea. Maybe we can get a, a monument for the the little general. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, I, th- I would like that. The other cannibals, the other two, and mm-hmm. the the woman. Mm-hmm. He continued to exhibit them for a long time, a couple years, or a couple more years, and then he started to get other people from other other native people, Aboriginal people from Australia, other people from Fiji. And so I and I don't know what happened to his two partners. There's no record of them or or Princess Oteva. I suspect she became probably something else in the sideshow. Oh, you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're traveling with it, that kind of turnover is pretty common. But, well, yeah, that happened a lot, right? Like someone would be a snake charmer for a while and then they'd be And then they'd meet somebody who could tattoo them and they were tattooed woman and it's good if you can have double features, you know, if you're if you have albinism and you can be a mind reader. Right. That's better than just someone with albinism. <laughs> the article mentions uh, Circassians, mm-hmm. which I know what they are because I'm around you. But I, I, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. While, while we have you here, let's talk Please about... explain. Yeah. Yeah, and I've never been absolutely sure whether it's Circassian or Circassian. I've, I've heard it pronounced both ways. But... I think Serata, when she reads the article, pronounces it Circassian. Yeah, but... and I've heard Circassian, so... Uh... Okay. We'll go with certain, but they're also called moss-haired girls. They're basically girls who uh, used stale beer to backcomb and tease their hair up into like the equivalent of like white afros and cr- like crazy hairstyles. Like they, they look pretty awesome. Yeah, they're they're very. The interesting thing about it is so much of it happens exactly a hundred years before punk, and the girls have very similar style. They have like buckle boots and striped tights and crazy hair, and it's like eighteen eighties instead of nineteen eighties. Would, would it have been a specific girl or just any? With that, they mentioned the article. Like I know you, you know that when they mention the other performers, you know specifically who they are. It, oh, who would have been performing potentially with, in, as as the Circassian in 1872 with Barnum? Yeah, do you, do you know who that is specifically? I'm just curious. Um, I don't know. It's still like early on. It would have been Zaluma Agra. She was like the first Barnum Circassian girl, the star of the East. At that, there's so many. I don't know who was touring. Now these these were mostly just. American women who Wayward. made their hair who, who made their hair look funny. They they weren't necessarily from an exotic land or anything. Absolutely not. They're like uh, girls from Germantown, <laughs> exotic <laughs> locales like uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia, or uh, Quaker girls, or uh, girls that ran away from home and joined the circus. Girls that found themselves somehow hooked up with a man that was in the circus. A lot of wives of men that were either candy butchers or. Uh, Barkers. Okay, or... what's a candy butcher? <laughs> um, it's a specific part of the circus. Sideshow had its own kind of culture too, right? I mean, they winter over in specific towns together usually, right? Yeah, there's specific towns where Ringling Circus, I guess it is, would winter in Baraboo, Wisconsin, where Barnum would winter in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And it didn't seem like they would choose warm locales, which is surprising to me. A lot of times they were in the Midwest. I think sometimes it's just a good place to start the next season. I think Thomas White on the last episode mentioned a town in Pennsylvania, and this could have been much later. Because mm-hmm. I know they continued to do this on up through modern times, really. Oh, yeah, they? and Fort Paul Circus was based out of Philadelphia, so I, I can't remember if they wintered in Philadelphia or not. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of circuses in 
there was even a circus in um, Glenrock, I think. Oh, really? At one point, yeah. And Welch Brothers Circus, where Harry Houdini started, that was in Lancaster. Got some interesting circus history in this area. So the sideshows, the, the people would kind of stick together. and They would, and it seemed like a, there was a lot of intermarrying amongst performers. It's kind of its own culture. Yeah, absolutely. And, and very, like, on the border of the law and social mores and it's yeah you've tracked uh, some interesting uh run-ins with with the law and so forth with these people yeah i it was really like people that were not living in the same 1880s that everyone else was living in i mean these people are traveling most of the year getting to see parts of the united states that other people will never see getting to see people other people will never see you know, this is an era where all of a sudden photography opens up what the rest of the world looks like. And these people already know. They're traveling with people that look different from them from... Uh, Fiji. From, yeah, they're <laughs> from different parts of the world, people that have different uh, disabilities, diseases. I mean, it's they really had a quite a different life experience than your average person that came to see the circus. And you hope maybe the cannibals didn't have a miserable existence. Maybe they there was some sort of companionship amongst the sideshow some sort of joy in some way that maybe it wasn't a horrible experience for them i'm just hoping i'm you know i'm sure there was plenty of horror to go <laughs> to go around I, you know I'm, I'm just hoping that perhaps they got some uh, you know companionship in that culture that that they had friends amongst the other people there. yeah yeah somebody they could have dinner with <laughs> yeah <laughs> somebody they get nice <laughs> I apologize. Hey, for, for the record, for the record, I have to say this is the episode I was most looking forward to, and it's the one I can't speak during. Unfortunately, I think that's a good thing. Go maybe. figure. <laughs> yeah, but I thought my jokes were solid. <laughs> they bite. Hey, that should have been mine. Let me chew on it for a while. Right, I'm cutting that out. It's just bad. I'd, I'd like to say that all of these stories with the sideshow performers end well, but even Chang and Ang went on in, to have a life outside the sideshow, but then they owned slaves, so, you know, it's like... Chang and Ang were... The original Siamese twins. They had slaves, so they retired from the circus before the Civil War. Well, I think they had them on their... I can't remember when their last performance was, but I do know that they had their own basically small little plantation, and they did own slaves. So some of these performers made good money. Absolutely. The more extreme your either disability or abnormality, the probably the better paid you were. I think like Millie Christine, who was twins that were uh, conjoined, so they looked, it appeared as if they had two heads. They were called the Singing Nightingale. They have referred to them as one person. Obviously, they were twins, but they probably, at that time, probably made one of the biggest salaries, supposedly. That's what the papers say. So, I mean, on one hand, it's horrible. You're making museums out of humans, right? Yeah. Not a nice thing. Mm -hmm. On the other, there's not a ton of options for, well, for some of these people. Exactly. Well, like the sociologist Robert Bogdan in his book Freaks has that same premise that um, it, it gave them a certain sense of independence. It gave them money. It gave them a culture where they could fit in. 
the culture might be the best thing. You know, I mean, I mean, money's great. You know, yeah, money's great, but having a place where you feel like you can be yourself, right? I, I think would potentially be worth more than as. A, and here's the thing: they're gonna, they would have been stared at either way. This way, they got paid. Yeah, that's another theory about. Well, I think we'll wrap it up and and hope that someday we'll figure out where the bodies are buried <laughs> <laughs> or or not buried, as the case may be. Like thank five. you, Allison. That was enjoyable. <laughs> yes, thank you, Allison Renner, our expert for the day. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, LLC. Music, art, podcasts, books, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Our readers for this episode were Serata and Matt Deterior. Thank you both. Don't forget Patreon.com slash StrangeFamiliars to become a patron. Intro and background music by Stonebreath. That's our band. You can find more at Stonebreath.Bandcamp.com
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.